Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. This week we check in on insects and pollinators and how they adapt to a changing world. Now humans use a lot of pesticides to protect their crops, but what is that doing to the insects like wasps and bees that visit those areas? And how is it changing their microbiome? Plus, what happens when wasps get visitors from out of town, along with which types of pollen do bees prefer, and can we give bees their tastiest meal? There'll be two areas that have been completely fascinating for microbiologists in recent years. And one, of course, is creatures' abilities to withstand certain types of chemicals and build up a resistance to them. We see this in the ongoing arms race with antibiotic resistance, as an example. But another is just how important the gut microbiome can be to conferring all kinds of benefits and hindrances to the host creatures. And the relationship between a host and its gut microbiome can help it survive in often challenging circumstances. And an example of this, in a really unusual case, has been investigated by Robert Brooker and his team from Harvard University, and recently published in Cell Host and Microbe. Now, these scientists turn their attention to, well, one of the most common pests in your garden. And pest species are often controlled with, you guessed it, potent chemicals. In particular, one of the major chemicals used to control as a herbicide is atrazine-based chemicals. And in particular, these can be used to kill off things like wasps. And I find wasps quite annoying but they serve an important role in some ecosystems, which we'll talk a little bit about later. But in this case, wasps can chew up and go through crops. So they're not great for farmers, and farmers want to control them, so they tend to use large amounts of these herbicides, often which are atrazine-based. Now, agrochemicals used to fertilize crops and control pest species give and can give a lot of these different creatures some kind of exposure and then resistance to some of these pesticides. And that means that you can end up with an arms race, much in the same way as you can end up an arms race with antimicrobial resistance. You can also end up with fighting with pesticides and the pests themselves. And now atrazine is the second most sold pesticide globally. And previous studies have shown that atrazine has multiple effects on host animals, so it can be pretty effective as a pesticide. But what they haven't looked at and what this study was examining is how it changes the gut microbiome. Because a chemical that potent can play pretty strange effects on anything around it. So Brooker and his team examined the impact of subtoxic levels of exposure and obviously acute levels of exposure to atrazine on a model wasp species. And they chose the model wasp species because it's easy to replicate and test hypotheses on over a long period of time. And they used 36 generations of these wasp species. Now, what they did is they exposed these wasps, as well as a control group that wasn't exposed, to 300 parts per billion, or PPB, of atrazine. And this is similar to the concentration that you'll see if you were a pollinator, like a bee or a wasp, in an agricultural field. If you were flying around an agricultural field or a nearby stream, you would see this level, 300 parts per billion of atrazine, in the environment around you. Now, that kind of level, it can change the behavior, the mitochondrial function, as well as all kinds of other functions of your microbiome. And they were keen to observe what happened to these wasps over a long period of time as they were exposed to this chemical. Not enough to kill them, just enough to have some weird effects. But as an example, or a pretty representative example of a common exposure level for 
an animal for these creatures to this pesticide. Now, in the first generation, the exposure to this 300 ppb of atrazine changed the bacterial community structure on the wasps. So that's pretty fascinating because it started to kill off lots of parts of the microbiome. But they saw then a rapid bounce back in of a huge amount of diversity and overall bacterial load. So they wiped out some of the bacteria living on this wasp and in its place all other wild kinds of bacteria started to emerge. Now even a low concentration, an order of 10 magnitude less, so 30 as opposed to 300, also caused a large microbiome shift. But what the researchers found fascinating is that this shift persisted over generations. It was passed on to the subsequent generations. In fact, after a while, they switched these wasp samples over to a non-atrazine-based diet or an environment for about six generations. And what they observed is that the strange microbiome that these wasps shifted themselves to then stuck around even though the atrazine, the thing that had given them this massive shift in the first place, was gone. And that indicates that the disruption of the microbiome caused by this really high exposure to the atrazine again gets passed on across generations, even after the exposure is removed. Now, what was interesting about this is even a small exposure like to 30 pb of atrazine over about 36 generations led to an immunity being developed Basically, there was a mortality reduction by about a factor of 10. And the wasps themselves also developed a tolerance to the herbicide glyphosate, even though they'd never been exposed to that particular compound. And even after 25 generations, the, all of them were switched to a non-atrazine diet, and they maintained that 10, 11 generations afterwards, which suggests that not only had the wasps adapted to the atrazine, had their microbiome shifted and changed, but then as a result, they gained a tolerance for, increased tolerance, to this particular pesticide. And they developed a tolerance for another entirely unrelated pesticide. And on top of that, it was inherited. So even after they stopped using that, they couldn't go back to using that as a pesticide because the wasps already were wise to its tricks and were able to resist it. And that is a particularly fascinating, if somewhat terrifying, insight into how this arms race can develop. Because this pesticide, the atrazine, actually alters the microbiome on the wasp. And that microbiome altering part is actually what's so key for them developing this resistance. For example, if you took these wasps and put them in a germ-free environment and eliminated all exposure to atrazine and sort of killed off their microbiome, well, they also then lost their tolerance to this pesticide. They died more again. They'd lost the ability to fight back against this pesticide. On the other hand, if you took this microbiome that is resistant to the cetrazine pesticide and you transplanted it onto prior non-exposed, non-developed wasps, they suddenly gained the ability to be resistant to atrazine. So not only is it genetically inheritable, but it's also transferable. And that is what is so fascinating about microbiology. Because these microbiomes of the guts of these wasps are having immense benefits to keep their hosts alive. And they're doing some great things to protect their host and to help them resist these pesticides. And the microbiome community is able to adapt quickly following this long consistent exposure to this pesticide, develop a resistance to it, and make sure that their host can hang on. And because this is a good trait, it's also inherited and passed down the chain. So this is important to understand because pesticide exposure, as, a, as an outcome of the study, can be 
inherited from generation to generation, and so can these microbiome changes. Now, Nasonia wasp, this type of wasp, or a model wasp, but not an actual, actual crop pollinator, but it's a good simulation of what might be happening out there to different types of pollinators, bees and wasps, that are exposed to pesticides. And it shows the importance of trying to get a deeper understanding of the host microbiome interaction. Because it's incredibly important for humans to understand that for ourselves, but also for the way in which we protect our crops and our food. Because whilst we can be trying to kill off a certain type of species now, we may be having long-lasting and nigh-irreversible impacts on these creatures and their microbiomes around it. This is some great research from Harvard University published in the journal Cell Host and Micro. A more globalised world can lead to things spreading much faster across the world from one part into another, very rapidly, sometimes almost seemingly overnight. And that might be true for viruses, as well as trade, economics, labour, and even insects. Yes, you see, since 2005, Europe has been assaulted, for want of a better word, by hornets. In particular, a certain type of hornet, the Vespas velutina nigothorax, or the Asian hornet. And first found in Europe in 2005 in southern western France. And since then, it sort of made its way further and further north, starting off in France and making its way up through regions of Spain, Portugal, the warmer areas, before heading north to Belgium, the Netherlands, even into parts of Great Britain. And now it's been found all the way up in Hamburg, in the northern part of Germany. And that's a pretty spectacular migration for a wasp, or hornet to be more precise, that's come all the way over from Asia. Now, from the spread of this hornet through France, people had estimated that this spread of this invasive species was around 78 kilometers a year. But it seems to have spread significantly faster than that. That is, of course, most likely due to anthropogenic factors. In other words, through the help of human transport of goods across many borders, it's quite possible for an insect species to get pushed far and wide outside of its natural home. And that's exactly what's happened in this case here, and helping it spread all the way up to Hamburg. Even though most scientists would consider that Hamburg area is not really suitable for the species today. In fact, that it would be too cold for a typical warmer-liking species. But it's spreading quite fast into regions that would be not normally suitable for it. It means it must be finding some kind of ecological niche that it can exploit. And tracking an invasive species like this is incredibly difficult, as researchers like Martin Hussemann from the Centre for Nature at the University of Hamburg have been studying. And they've published their results of finding this particular wasp all the way up in Hamburg in the open access journal Evolutionary Systematics. And it's very important to track these species because as soon as you introduce one, and in the case of a hornet, a predator, into an ecosystem, it can change the balance between other creatures, especially those struggling to survive as the climate changes. And as climate changes, you actually see more species migrating into areas that weren't otherwise normally their home. And this can lead to a conflict between them and the existing species in the region, 
So the displaced species that have migrated in and the inhabiting species can fight over the same scarce resources or changed resources. And this can lead to species dying out or the whole ecosystem and food web undergoing a dramatic shift. And that's what these scientists are worried about here. But as an example about how the spread of a hornet from Asia can make its way through France all the way up Europe, even into the colder regions of Northern Europe, which is an interesting insight into how globalized our world is and just how quickly even animals and insects, though they may be small, can spread in a globalized society. Bees play a pretty important role in our society. They pollinate crops, heaps of different plant species out in the wild, and they can also produce delicious honey. That's why wild bees with the 20,000 different bee species are all important and need to be considered. And bumblebees, or the honeybee, are two famous examples. But one of the things you first think of when you think of a bee is, what do they eat? Well, they obviously go to these flowers and they collect the pollen when they're eating the nectar of the flowers, and then what? So when a bee has a choice from a lot of different food sources, what do they go for? Their main food sources are nectar and pollen. And nectar is a source, of course, of carbohydrates. Pollen contains a lot of the other necessary nutrients, proteins, fat, minerals, and vitamins. So what is a good meal for a bee? And that's what researchers like Professor Sarah Lennart from the Technical University of Munich had been investigating and recently published in the journal Ecology Letters. Now, it was assumed that like most herbivores, bees would be going after something that gives them the most protein content. That would make sense. They need a good way to get some protein into their systems, so they sort of tried to aim for that. But using a two-step approach with lots of different feeding experiments for bees, they tried to see which type of food the bees prefer. All of this work was coordinated by Fabian Drudener, as one of the main authors of the study. And they focused on two different types, a case where bees could get some types of nutrients like fat, and another case where they could get something with heavy with proteins. This choice between fatty or protein rich sort of gave them a choice of types of food sources that the scientists are really keen to investigate. The reason why they were focusing on these fatty and amino acids is they have a strong presence in two essential pollen macronutrients. So that means they could actually be tasted by the bees. Detected by the bees and mean the bees could have some kind of preference for them. So small amounts of these fatty acids were added to the pollen to try and boost its fat content and give them something to actually taste. To see if the bees could differentiate between the two types of food sources and then see if they had a preference one way or the other. So when they added this fatty acid, the bees didn't seem to care. So that sort of threw them back to the drawing board. What would they actually prefer then? As you know, bees forage and fly around from flower to flower. So what flower do they pick? And this is why they're trying to understand this question. So they tried to keep increasing and increasing the fat content in this pollen. And what they found was pretty surprising. The more fat the pollen contained, the less the bumblebees tried to consume that pollen. Even accepting death over consuming a really high fat pollen. So obviously, the fat in the pollen adversely impacted the bees somehow their reproductive capabilities and their survival, which is why the bees were avoiding it so hard, even 
taking death as a preferred option rather than having this what would to them be quite poisonous a meal. So what have the researchers learned? Well, by changing the amount of proteins, it didn't really make too much of a difference in the feeding habits. But of course, increasing the fat content in them certainly did. And the beans can taste what's good for them and then pick which food is important. Steer clear of foods that would have damaging impacts on their health and reproductive capability, i.e. high fat content, and stick to something that's more tolerable for them to eat. Which means that the pollen selection and choice, the bees are quite picky and they're able to select which one suits them best. That has important implications for people trying to protect bees out in the landscape. You need to plant the right type of flowers with the right type of pollen because not all pollens are the same and bees do have a clear preference for different types of flowering species. And so that's why these researchers have been messing around with trying to find the best diet for a bee because by doing so we can help understand exactly what bees are looking for when they want a snack and thus keep them safe out in the wild. Some great research from the Technical University of Munich published in the journal Ecology Letters. This has been the Young Scientist of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From invasive species of wasps all the way to finding what bees prefer to eat and how changes in the microbiome can be introduced by pesticide use. This week and more on pollinators. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.